Chapter Fourteen of Juggernaut: A Veiled Record. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Juggernaut: A Veiled Record by George Carey Eggleston and Dolores Marborg. Chapter Fourteen. Helen had no opportunity to decline Gladys Van Dyne's invitation to Dorp House, the Van Dyne summer place on the Sound even if she had been reluctant to go thither, as, in a certain way, she was. She craved seclusion with her husband, but she also craved a fuller immersion in that life of ease and art and culture in which she had as yet only dabbled with her feet. She was a trifle appalled by her own ignorance of the ways of that life, and shrank a little from it, as one shrinks from the cold bath while still desiring its shock. But there was no choice left to her. Gladys Van Dyne was a peremptory little lady, accustomed to having her own winning way, and, moreover, the whole matter had been arranged between the elder Van Dyne and Brain before it was mentioned to Helen at all. Dorp House was within easy reach of the city, so that no business obstacle interposed. It would be infinitely pleasanter for Helen to rest there than to swelter in a hotel. Van Dyne and Brain had need of many and prolonged conferences over the business operations in which they were engaged, and Van Dyne wished Brain to meet a number of gentlemen whose connection with that business it was necessary to conceal as much as possible. These were so often Van Dyne's guests in summer that the necessary conferences with them could be had at Dorp House without observation, whereas any meeting in town would have set tongues wagging. Thus all arguments pointed in one way, and it only remained for Helen to discover that the change would be beneficial to Brain, on whom heat and work were beginning to have some effect, in order that she should dismiss all her little fears and hesitations. It was not until she had grown somewhat used to the sumptuous but easy hospitality of the house that she again resumed her diary. From Helen's Diary I have had no time to write for many days. I am living in a whirl of excitement, and yet there is no occasion for excitement, as I am made to feel that I can really do precisely as I please. The charm of this house's hospitality is that it sets one free. I need never go anywhere, or make the least apology for not going. I need not go to bed or get up till I like. I need never appear at a meal if I wish to stay away, and I need not wonder what anybody will think. And yet I feel as if I were in a whirl of excitement, I suppose because all the people about me are so bright and the atmosphere so intellectual. Every species of high thought is represented here. Among the guests are artists, connoisseurs, musicians, authors, statesmen, financiers, and a world of brilliant and beautiful women. Good taste seems the only law existing or necessary in this society. It never occurred to me before but good taste seems to be a complete code of morals, whose observance renders all other statutes unnecessary. Edgar is ever the lover, 
one whose caresses and endearments are never exhausted, and there is endless delight in the thought that my life holds nothing but tomorrows with him. Gladys is altogether such as I imagined her to be at first sight, a charming, delicate woman, full of affection that never blunders, and is never lacking in tact. She is the most graceful hostess in the world. When I see her in this capacity, a sudden longing to have such a home and such opportunities to bring about me such men and women comes over me. I never mentioned this to Edgar until last night, for I feared he would think me dissatisfied, and that is impossible. I must always be happy where he is. The cottage at Thebes is not forgotten, and at times, amid all this luxury and charm, I long for it with Edgar all to myself. Last night I said something that conveyed my thought to him quite by accident. I was confused for a moment afterward, and wanted to turn it off, but a sudden happy light came into Ed's eyes, and he said, "'You would like to live like this?' I admitted it a little reluctantly but told him that I would be just as well satisfied, though, when we were back in Thebes. He said that he was glad to know that this life made me happy, and that if I had not the ambition for it, at least the life would not be distasteful to me, that in another year I should entertain these same people in my own house, and that that house should be where I wished it to be. This produced in me a strange emotion. It was one of joyous intoxication, and regret. I don't know what the regret was for, and it vanished in a moment. Everyone is very attentive to us. Edgar at once took the reins in his own hands. There seemed to be no effort on his part. He appeared to be almost unconscious of it. They are people whom he had never seen before, but people that everyone hears of. There is something almost aggressively non-aggressive in Edgar's manner. It is impossible that he should appear in any company or walk through a room without impressing everyone who sees him. Tonight there were some strange guests at dinner, and I was seated next to one of them, while Edgar took in Gladys. My neighbor did not understand that I was Edgar's wife, and during dinner the conversation turned on some public question and someone referring to Edgar for his opinion, he gave it. He seemed to forget the company after a moment, he was so deeply interested in the subject, and talked on. Everyone at the table seemed suddenly to cease talking, and to be listening intently to him. I forgot them myself, everything but Edgar in his voice. There is a quality in his voice that I have never known in any other person's. It is a magnetic quality that compels one, that fascinates one. When he stopped speaking, everyone was silent for a moment, and then a murmur of approval ran around the table. The man next to me turned and said, Do you remember that gentleman's name? And I said, Yes, Mr. Brain. And he said with a sudden surprise, The man who was just why he is a statesman i had thought him only a speculator 
he said it with a funny little snap of his teeth and a decisive nod i did not dare say that i was edgar's wife i felt that i deserved punishment for daring to be his wife i cannot be interested in the conversation of people unless they are talking of him everyone seems to have discovered this and so they all talked to me a great deal of him one or two of the gentlemen here i do not like particularly i seem to afford them a certain amusement and they endeavor to corner me on every occasion and talk to me one of them said last night you are one of the most naive women that i have ever known it made me a little angry for some reason and i told edgar about it afterward and he held my face in his hands and said well you certainly are and his eyes smiled i seemed to like it when edgar said it there is a mr everett coming to-morrow everyone seems to enjoy the anticipation of his visit gladys talks a great deal of him he is evidently a very superior man we leave here tomorrow night and return to thebes I have a little curiosity to meet the man and hope that he will come before we leave. August. We are still at Dorp House and do not leave for some days yet. Mr. Everett came yesterday morning. He is a charming man and reminds me of Edgar in many ways. He is a dignified man, too. I do not like men who do not impress me as earnest and grave. He is a courtly sort of man. I was very anxious to see him, for I desired to compare, impartially, Edgar and a man who is so much sought after and lauded for his brilliancy. Well, I have seen him. Edgar is only the more magnificent. Mr. Everett and he seem to appreciate each other greatly. They smoke together and have had a long talk. They seem to have a great respect for each other's opinions, though they do not agree. After dinner this evening, Mr. Everett came out on the piazza where I was sitting, and we had a delightful talk for an hour. I did not feel at all embarrassed. I have never felt just that since we left Thebes. I feel often that I am not the equal of many of those whom I meet, in an intellectual way, and I regret it but I have the assurance that I am honest in doing my best for Edgar, and that they will overlook any mistake of mine kindly, as I am his wife. We talked of many things, and finally he regretted that we were going to go soon, and hoped that he would see us in Washington. His interests are there, and he spends the winters there, and does something politically. I don't know anything about that. I told him about Thebes, and that we were to live there, that we had taken a cottage, and that I did not suppose that we could go to Washington for a long time, as I thought we should have to be quite economical. For some reason I found myself talking very confidentially to him, and we seemed to have known each other a long time. I told him about the people at Thebes, and the enterprise, and that it was just possible that sometime we could live somewhere else, and differently, a little like this. He listened very attentively and sympathetically. 
there seemed to be a puzzled and surprised expression on his face at first, but soon it disappeared, and he smiled and said meditatively, "'Yes, I understand.' After a while I happened to look up, and Edgar stood leaning against the railing, watching me. There was a beautiful look in his eyes, and he and Mr. Everett looked at each other and smiled. I thought they seemed a little amused, but very much pleased. I asked Edgar afterwards, and he said he could never look otherwise than pleased when listening to me, could he? I presume he can't. It was with a little sigh of regret that Helen received the final summons for an immediate return to Thebes. She reproached herself for the feeling, and resolutely made up her mind that her one supreme longing was to begin the quiet life she had planned to lead with Braine in the little white cottage, with the bed of sweet Williams before the door. Gladys had solemnly promised to visit her there during Lent, when society is so deadly dull, you know, a promise which she kept, making Thebes her place of retirement and meditation in preparation for her marriage after Easter. Brain set out on the return journey with a peculiar buoyancy of spirits, which helped to drive away Helen's little regrets. "'Never mind, dear,' he said, as they took their places in the palace car. "'You have not seen the last of your New York friends. You shall spend winters there before you are many years older. I have only to emphasize myself in Thebes.' and then we shall seek larger pastures. But hasn't this trip cost you a great deal of money, Ed? Well, it hasn't impoverished me, at any rate, he answered, with his queer smile. Perhaps that is because I am not altogether the paymaster. But he did not explain. End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline